is an Odyssey original. This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. Senators finally get their chance to question Supreme Court nominee Katanji Brown-Jackson. She's been defending her record as a federal judge to Republicans who have been trying to frame Jackson and Democrats in general as soft on crime. But will that strategy actually work? We'll go in depth. We'll also head back to Ukraine and talk to a woman who escaped Mariupol, the port city that has been under heavy Russian attack. She says she is still waiting to reunite with her parents. And President Biden warned businesses to watch out for Russian cyber attacks. If they do come, they may come fast and furious. And could that spark a military response? More migrants are showing up to the U.S.-Mexico border from Ukraine, from Russia. We'll go in-depth on how they're planning to get into the U.S. If they do, the commercial plane in China that crashed, apparently killing everyone on board, it basically fell from the sky. We'll try to figure out how. Remember the movie Panic Room with Jodie Foster? She went in that safe room to hide when the thieves broke into the house. Um, there are worries that um, those kind of events are happening in L.A. and more of the people who can afford these places are building their own panic rooms. So we will talk about that. OK, everybody else has closets. Right. <laughs> That's yes. about it. <laughs> no one has a uh, hideaway slide no, out of the bookshelf no. <laughs> and go to your secret layer now. OK, we start, though, with the uh, confirmation hearings for Supreme Court nominee Katanji Brown Jackson. With us is Caroline Fredrickson a senior fellow at the Brennan Center for Justice and former president of the American Constitution Society. Thanks for being with us. Um, So as we said at the outset, uh, at least the Republicans are trying to clearly uh, paint Ms. Jackson as somebody who is soft on crime, somebody who was a public defender, as if that's supposed to be a negative. Uh, Is that a strategy that might end up working? Well, I don't think so. I think they've recognized and even admitted that they have no real chance of stopping her nomination. Um, It seems as if what they're trying to do is simply sully it, uh, sully her reputation. But I think as you sort of indicated in the way you framed the question, what's so problematic about it is that um, for those of us who believe in rule of law and uh, a, a fair administration of justice, our whole system depends on there being defense counsel as well as prosecutors. And if we didn't have that, we would live in an autocracy and we might as well be in Putin's Russia right now. Right. It's part of the system for a reason. Um, So what has happened to these hearings? Because, look, we can switch sides and go to the other one if it was a different kind of year, too. And and whatever your side, quote unquote, you're going to lob some softballs. And then the other side is going to try and get on the network that they prefer. And this is a midterm year. So, you know, some of these senators maybe want to run for president. So they're going extra hard. And that's not how it's supposed to be. But, of course, it's not a perfect world. Yeah, well, you know, I think, I mean, I guess what everybody might say at the end of this is that that there were no surprises. At least there haven't been any so far. It was pretty clear what the line of arguments were going to be in terms of attacks. And just as it was clear what the, you know, softballs in the defense was going to be, you know, Tangie Brown Jackson, um, you know, comes from a very loving family, has a lot of family in law enforcement. Um, She's very much, you know, issued decisions from the middle of the road, Um, stellar uh, credentials, uh, loved by everybody, you know, and then, uh, you know, these kind of off the wall um, uh, attacks from people like Josh Hawley, who um, um, he even was criticized by the National Review for distorting her record and sentencing uh, around child pornography. Um, And that, that, I think that really indicates 
that he's gone a bit um, a bit out of uh, out of bounds um, when the National Review actually has to take him to task. Is there any way other than than I guess calling it game playing to describe, for example, Senator Graham, Lindsey Graham, who voted in her favor for the current position she has, right, but has now said he's not going to vote in favor for the Supreme Court? Well, you know, I, I do think the whole thing has become a bit of a kabuki theater, unfortunately, and, and it has been for a long time. I just, um, I mean, I think we remember hearings have not always been the norm for Supreme Court uh, nominees. There's actually a fairly recent development. Um, and they do, as, you know, again, as you indicated, you know, in your earlier question, they become a forum for other objectives, that is for those who are running for president to kind of trot out their bona fides as uh, playing to um, a conservative base, for the Democrats to support uh, the nominee of the Democratic president, um, to, to sort of ask questions that align with their own viewpoints. Um, so it's not very illuminating in that sense. Um, and I think Judge Jackson, you know, she is a brilliant um, jurist. She's gone through this process several times already, so she knows how to do it successfully. Um, and I don't think she is going to say anything that is going to surprise uh, anybody. Um, at the end of the day, she's going to be confirmed. The votes are pretty much the way you know we we can expect them to be from right now. They're not going to change. <laughs> I don't think. Um, with Lindsey Graham, I think he was playing a game with, you know, he, he wanted Judge Childs, and it's nice to have a Supreme Court justice from your home state. She's perhaps a little more conservative than um, uh, Judge Jackson. It's hard to know. Um, but, I, you know, I think he, too, has his own, his own state-based agenda and his own national agenda. Caroline Fredrickson, senior fellow at the Brennan Center for Justice, former president of the American Constitution Society, saw a tweet from a CBS reporter earlier on saying, uh, buy a drink for your favorite congressional reporter because we're at Senator 10 of 22 and we've been here six hours or whatever it is. We have been talking to people in Ukraine, hearing their stories about the war. Maria and her teenage brother escaped the port city of Mariupol earlier this month, and that has been a city that is under heavy Russian attack, still is. Her parents stayed behind to help out in any way they can before also leaving just recently. Maria is with us now. Maria, thank you for taking time to talk with us. You are no longer in Mariupol, as we said. What part of Ukraine are you in? I'm on the west part of Ukraine. It's for now the safest place in so, Ukraine. So near Lviv, something like that? Um, not leave uh, the Karpatska Oblast or the Karpatska region. Okay, so a safer place uh, relative to where you were coming from. What was it like for for you and the brother to make that journey, and then your parents, as we said, they recently were able to to get out. Yeah, it was a really hard journey journey for us, uh, for me and my younger brother. Uh, we escaped uh, on the 3rd of March. It was the third day of uh, total blockade. And uh, for us, it was really um, terrifying what was going on in Mariupol. You know, just uh, constant bombing and uh, no light, no gas, uh, no water. And, uh, you know, you're just uh, thinking in this uh, situation how to survive. And that's all thoughts that you have in mind. 
how to survive. And uh, for me, it was really a disaster. And uh, I couldn't uh, eat, uh, I couldn't drink, uh, and I understood that uh, I just will die. And that's why I decided to escape. And uh, I escaped. Uh, and uh, I was on the road for, you know, 48 hours and uh, with stops, but still it was really hard. Uh, Maria, to... tell me t- tell me a little bit about uh, you yeah. and, and, and your family. You're, you and your brother, you mentioned your younger brother. How old are you? How yeah. old is your brother? I'm 28 and uh, my brother is uh, 16. Before the war, so not that long ago, uh, what did yeah. all of you folks do in Ukraine? What, what was your life like before this happened? Oh, you know, we just lived our happy life. <laughs> uh, what we were doing, we were working, <laughs> uh, we were working, uh, just uh, building our lives uh, like dreams. You know, I lived uh, in uh, uh, Kiev for, for some time, and uh, on the 23rd of uh, March, I visited uh, Mariupol, uh, visited my parents, relatives, uh, friends, uh, and uh, uh, for example, we walked uh, in a park, and uh, Mariupol actually was an amazing city because they just destroyed everything there. Uh, you know, I, we just, we had so many beautiful parks, uh, seashore, and, uh, uh, you know, even uh, beautiful industrial, industrial uh, landscapes. Uh, they were so, so, you know, close to heart. And, uh, for now, it just everything was destroyed. What is it like to to think about it now? To know what's happened now to a place that was that was so beautiful. Uh, you know, I I think I just can't even for now imagine it. I, I see photos, but I don't believe them. I I, I can't. And uh, even uh, today, uh, our neighbors. Uh, which escaped uh, today, they sent us a video of uh, our home. And uh, 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 we lived in a high-rise building. Uh, and uh, it burned out. The entire, oh. the entire building is burnt out. The entire building. The entire building was... I don't have home anymore, actually. And your parents, same thing? Yes. Yes, it was our flat where we lived. Do so you... today today I became homeless. <laughs> Maria, do, do you and your family, I mean, it, 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 this is all happening, obviously, so quickly. Yes. But you must be starting to think, I, I would imagine what your future is going to be like. Do you have a a sense of, of where you go from here, what you do from here? Uh, I just 
can't even imagine what to do um and what my parents will do you know when you're escaping from that hell uh you can you, you know your horizon of planning it is very small for a first week you can plan just for i don't know two hours one day that's all you can plan that that's all time for what you can plan anything one day not not uh, n- not more and uh, uh now i feel that i can plan for example for a week but not uh, a father because uh it is uh very it is it everything is very frustrating and you know i i th- i'm thinking about maybe maybe go to europe but uh, then i see what's going on in ukraine and i understand that if ukraine wants stand it will happen to europe and then where i should go i don't know it's uh, uh it's uh, uh, very frustrating and very terrifying even because uh, for now I understand that even Europe won't be safe enough <laughs> if I want to escape uh, from Russia uh, aggression. You... Because, uh, you know, Europe uh, now taking Russians, uh, like m- m- we're calling them McDonald's refugee. Uh, and uh, so they will come to rescue them, guys. That's uh, that's a disaster, I think. We mentioned that your parents were able to get out of the city. Uh, have you? Yeah. Are they with you, or are you still trying to get to them? Or are they trying to get to you? And you must have been so worried on the outside when they were still there. I can't even imagine. Yeah, I haven't heard from them more than a week. And I was so nervous, I just couldn't even sleep. I just didn't know if they're alive or they are dead or what happened. And uh, that's uh, a really huge relief in their life. And uh, I'm now helping them to find places to save, to stay on the road because they are really exhausted. They're really tired, exhausted and uh, in a shock. You know, uh, my father, when he escaped for at first day, they called me and he told me that he will return to Mariupol in few day, in a few days. Hmm. It was a shock. Maria, Maria what what are your thoughts about uh, Russia? Russians, do you do you uh, distinguish? between the Russian government and the Russian people, or do you have a feeling that is, is sort of a blanket feeling now about Russia and Russians? There is no distinguish. You know, there is no, really. I know Russians. I have relatives. I have Russian relatives. And uh, they're totally zombied by their government. They're totally zombied. Have you, you talked? Have you, what? Maria? Have you talked or tried to talk with your relatives in Russia? Or what do they tell you if of you have? Of course, 
of course, I talked to them. Uh, I told them, guys, there are muscles under my uh, muscle under my window in my yard. Uh, come on, come and tell something. Do something at least. I don't know. You're my relatives. How how can you not doing anything? And you know what they told me? Uh, just stay home. Just stay home and don't go. They will destroy just military objects. Guys, I'm not a military object. Come on. <laughs> but uh, I have a piece of muscle in uh, my uh, flat. Uh, they, they, you know, they uh, watching uh, Russian TV and just try for one I from at once try to watch it. It that's a real hell. They just there is no a word of truth. And uh, and uh, when I talked to my relatives, you know, I told them, hey, uh, they are killing us. You know, they they erased Mariupol from the earth totally, eighty percent destroyed, and. Uh, they're still uh, just uh, in the silence. You said zombies to the to the propaganda on TV. Um, Maria, thank you for talking to us. Maria there and her teenage brother got out of the port city of Mariupol. Her parents, they were able to get out. Uh, they are on the way. She's trying to find them places to stay. And uh, our hearts go out to you and the, the family, and we're so sorry about it you losing your home. And again, thank you for speaking to us. This is KNX In-Depth. He's Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. President Biden been warning companies watch out for cyber attacks that'll come from Russia. President says they would be a form of retaliation against the U.S. for sanctions and the other actions taken against Russia since the war in Ukraine began. Cyber attacks coming from Russia wouldn't be something new, though. But would an escalation of these attacks further fracture already strained U.S.-Russian relations? Aaron David Miller is a senior fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, also CNN Global Affairs Analyst. Aaron, thanks for being back with us. So uh, what is the concern level? I know we're hearing it from the White House uh, in the past 24, 48 hours or so. Uh, Does that mean that they are convinced through their own intelligence that this is a real and and imminent problem? I think, uh, first of all, it's good to to talk to Mike and Charles, and thanks for having me back. Uh, Look, the Biden administration has been incredibly transparent since this crisis began. I mean, for weeks uh, before the invasion, they basically laid out intel, intelligence that um, was basically pretty unprecedented in terms of its level of detail in an effort to uh, sort of dominate the information space and perhaps, perhaps, although I think they probably realized this was, would not be possible, to deter Putin from actually projecting his power into Ukraine. Here's another example of trying to get a jump on uh, the Russian leader uh, to basically uh, brief the American public that, in fact, cyber is not only an option, an option but I think they're picking up, well, I know they're picking up signals that um, Russia is in the quote-unquote preparatory stages um, for the possibility of serious cyber warfare uh, against Ukraine and the United States. Uh, Biden would not be alerting the American public, given our dependence, um, I think I'll change my all my passwords, um, on, on 
the web uh, and on, on virtual space um, if they didn't have a, a pretty good indication that something is coming. And I think that's where we, we are now. And one last point here, you know, Putin has blown through so many um, uh, norms and standards. Uh, so the notion of blowing through another, which wouldn't be a ransomware attack against like solar winds attack in 2020, but would be attack designed to target underwater cables, industrial uh, control centers, uh, major infrastructure, the financial industry, um, any of the media networks uh, whose coverage he doesn't like, uh, is a serious possibility. Yeah, so then what happens then? Because that's an entirely different thing, right, in terms of escalation and, and, and a back and forth that could get started rather than just, hey, he's going to slow down things and, and mess with them for for a day or two, and we can all kind of weather that storm or, or launch more ransomwares, and, and we deal with that. But if he's knocking out pieces of the Internet or critical infrastructure, then we would have to respond, right? We would. And, and again, there's so many uh, disturbing rabbit holes down which to go here. Um, you know, a cyber attack, frankly, um, could could be terrifyingly destructive. But you know, Putin has just has thought about the clearly thought about the possibility of deploying biological or chemical weapons in Ukraine, and even although it was, it's still unimaginable to me. It's very real the possibility of deploying a small tactical nuclear weapon, either as a demonstration effect of what he could do, or an actual use of such a weapon with a low nuclear yield on the battlefield. So the idea of a major attack against the United States, I think, is certainly very real. And yes, we would have to respond. I mean, again, the last time we Congress was asked for a formal declaration of war, believe it or not, was 1943, when Roosevelt asked for a declaration of war against Hungary, Bulgaria, and Romania, who are Axis allies. So a major attack against critical infrastructure in this country would, in fact, be um, a, de a declaration of economic war, just as, and I suspect this is what's really bothering Putin, the economic nuclear bomb that we that we in the international community have dropped on, dropped on Russia. He's angry, he's aggrieved, and, and over time he'll grow more so. You know, and you mentioned that if the Russians were to launch a cyber attack on the U.S., we would be forced to respond. But can we presume that, that we're not all, that aren't we doing that already to the Russians in terms of cyber attacks? Well, I I think well, first of all, there are cyber attacks and there are cyber attacks. Okay. And again, I don't I don't I'm I'm not a cyber expert and I don't play one on radio or television. But it, it, there's a difference between uh, discrete, targeted, and focused cyber attacks designed to disrupt Russian military communications, uh, and one that is um, directed at critical Russian infrastructure. Um, I mean, he, Russia is going to be is already a different country. Lenin, Vladimir Lenin once said that some weeks contain decades. Well, for the Russian public, um, Russia, the Russia they knew has come to an end. The ruble is worthless. 
Um, you've got a huge brain drain, brain drain. Prices are surging, particularly in areas like elect electronics. Russians are buying up as much surplus as they possibly can. Um, there are no flights going to much of the world as a consequence of our sanctions. Life is going to become harder than it was. So uh, if the Russians choose to, to, to force a response from the administration, I suspect we will, we will respond proportionally. And if, in fact, it is a major threat against critical infrastructure, um, we will do the same. Aaron David Miller, Senior Fellow, the Carnegie Endowments for International Peace. Border officials in both the U.S. and Mexico are dealing with a surge of migrants, but they're not coming from Central or South America. They are coming from Ukraine and some even from Russia. Something that was going on before the war, but the numbers uh, from Ukraine have increased lately. So what are uh, the governments doing to address this? Jessica Bolter's with us, Associate Policy Analyst with the U.S. Immigration Policy Program at the Migration Policy Institute. Uh, Jessica, thank you. In terms of those numbers, have we been able to get a handle on, on how much of an increase we're seeing? Because the feds will usually go with something like there has been an uptick lately. And we'll get back to you later. That's true. So. We have certainly, we know that we've seen increases in Ukrainians and Russians as well in uh, fiscal year 2021 and the first five months of fiscal year 2022, which is October through February. Uh, but we don't know how many have yet come in March, uh, which is when we'll likely start to really see the effects of the invasion show up. Does American law treat someone coming from either Russia now or certainly Ukraine uh, differently than they would uh, having somebody come from, uh, you know, Central America or or from from Mexico? Is there a distinction between a refugee as opposed to somebody who is crossing the border or wants to cross the border because they want to live in another country, meaning this one? Right. So anyone who... Uh, shows up at the U.S. border, in theory, uh, should be able to apply for asylum regardless of their nationality. But because since March 2020, we have had uh, this policy called Title 42 in place as a result of the pandemic, which allows border officials to uh, immediately expel migrants uh, without providing them access to asylum, that has changed. And we've seen in uh, recent weeks that the uh, Border Patrol has started to put in place an exception largely for Ukrainians um, and has been allowing them access to the asylum system when they show up at ports of entry along the border even though they're uh, still not allowing access to asylum for people who are coming from uh, most other countries when they show up at those ports. Yeah, and in the reports that we are seeing, we've got some people from Central America saying, okay, um, we don't feel this is fair because, you know, we've been waiting and we need asylum and we need to get into the country, but they're moving Ukrainian people to the front of the line and maybe they're getting some sort of refugee status or something like that. And then also some Russians saying, well, Ukrainians are getting to go through, but but we're not. And I can't go back to Russia because I don't agree with the war. And maybe that's not the thing that'll get you in. But if you really feel like you'd be persecuted if you go back, if you've said things and they have these new laws now, then uh, maybe is that more of a reason that you could get into this country? Uh, yes. Uh, the 
theoretically, uh, maybe it it should be, but um, and there are, I should say, there are humanitarian exceptions made on a case by case basis uh, in terms of uh, migrants who are who might be particularly vulnerable and then allowed into the U.S. at these ports to seek asylum, but that's that's certainly not the norm. And I think that the fact that Russians who are fleeing persecution for objecting to the same conflict that the Ukrainians are fleeing uh, and they still can't ask for asylum really makes the, the arbitrariness of this policy in place at the border crystal clear. But at the same time, um, there, there are plenty of Central Americans, uh, you know, Nicaraguans, Venezuelans fleeing persecution who also haven't been able to uh, enter at these ports of entry since March 2020. If someone is coming from Ukraine uh, and they want to come to the U.S. Uh, and stay here, why do they have to go through through Mexico? Why can't they just you know fly into New York or or uh, Chicago or Los Angeles? Right. So, if someone has a tourist visa already or another type of visa, uh, say a student visa um, or uh, or if they have a family member sponsoring them for a green card, then they can fly into the U.S. But it has become much harder for anyone from these countries to get uh, tourist visas or any uh, any non-permanent visas because uh, in order to get a tourist visa, they essentially have to prove that they intend to go back to their home country. And that's very difficult for Ukrainians to do at this point. Uh, and so Mexico does not uh, require as extensive a visa process for these individuals. Um, it allows them to fly into Mexico uh, with just uh, by by just submitting their passport information and flight information beforehand. Uh, so in the absence of pathways to come into the U.S., uh, many have, have turned to Mexico instead. Is there any for, again, for Ukrainians, if, if there are refugees, is there any kind of special dispensation set up right now, or is it just the, the usual program case-by-case case basis and you would have to get to Mexico and then come to the border, and that's what we're seeing, and then and then just please your case like anybody else? Right. At the moment, uh, there isn't a special pathway set up. Uh, Ukrainians could uh, apply to the U.S. refugee program. They would have to do that from a country abroad. And that process can take years to go through. So that wouldn't be an, an immediate pathway. So there's essentially no sort of emergency pathway for them to utilize. Jessica Bolter there at the Migration Policy Institute. Jessica, thanks. You're listening to KNX In-Depth with Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. Investigators looking into what caused the commercial plane crash in China this week, apparently killing all 132 people on board. The plane was cruising at 29,000 feet, suddenly took a nosedive. Now, that has analysts and experts puzzled because they say the Boeing 737-800 has such a great safety record. With us now is Sean Prusnicki, retired airline pilot, current professor of aviation safety and operation at uh, Ohio, at The Ohio State University. If I don't say the the, 
people at Ohio State get very upset. Isn't that right, Sean? Oh, absolutely. We become tremendously upset. Right, because it's, <laughs> cause it's the. It. <laughs> it's, it's not Ohio State. It's the Ohio State University. Okay. Absolutely. So so this uh, aircraft, as you well know more than, than others, uh, the safest time in an airliner is usually at, at cruise altitude, which this plane was. What sorts of things would make a plane like the 737 apparently literally drop out of the sky? Well, you're exactly right, gentlemen, that the cruise portion has the lowest incidence of um, initiating where we see accidents begin, extremely low. As far as what can cause or what we've seen historically, things that can trigger or the initiating phase of an accident, the progression of an accident event, have been things um, as far as or along the lines of um, terrorist uh, bombs, uh, a loss of control for, for some reason, either uh, human-driven loss of control or automation loss of control. Um, there have been cases of uh, thrust reversers becoming deployed in flight that have caused a loss of control. Now, now keep in mind, with all these things that I'm throwing out, there are safety um, uh, factors, mitigations that are in place to prevent some of these things from happening. But we have seen in the past where some of those things have been overridden or have not worked. But those are just a few examples of some things that would be on the list are some of the things that are going to have to be ruled out as we get deeper into this investigation. Worth pointing out uh, in this segment, as in many of the articles, because people have the memory of the last couple of years, and then they've lots of them have watched the Netflix documentary. This is not the Max. This is not the 737 Max. This is an older plane, but not even that much older. I mean, all of us, most of us have been on a, a 700 or an 800, right? So this is not what we saw in that uh that documentary from a couple months ago. That is exactly right. This is a uh, this is a similar airplane. You're exactly right. Similar type, seven thirty seven, and uh, but it is not the Max. In fact, I flew on a couple of these just last week on spring break with my kids, uh, seven thirty seven eight hundred, and so this aircraft, um, as all seven thirty sevens, has a tremendous tremendous safety record. And you know, gentlemen, I, I want to put push uh, one thing out in there that we can talk about for, for the listeners you know, to think about as we move forward this week, gathering information. As an investigator, there's some really compelling um, preliminary information that's come out. And if you look at the flight-aware information that shows the flight profile, the um, I, I think most people have seen it, the uh, altitude and airspeed and so forth, it actually shows... Um, of course, the loss of control, or I should say the rapid descent, um, you know, an unbelievable descent rates, 20, 30,000 feet per minute. And it actually shows a brief recovery. I'm not sure if either of you have seen that, down around nine, ten thousand 10,000 feet. Yeah, it starts going up aircraft, a little bit, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It levels off about 9,000 feet or so. And I'm not sure, I wasn't able to tell what the time scale was, but it levels off for a few moments, we'll say. And then it resumes its plunge again back to a tremendous ascent rate before it impacts the ground. As an accident investigator, you know, that's extremely compelling because that, that, that shows that there's some, the aircraft, something regains control of the aircraft. I'm not sure if that's automation or if that's the humans or if it's both of them working in concert. Um, but something on board the aircraft 
is able to regain control of the airplane. But wouldn't now, I'm not but, sure if. But correct me if I'm wrong, though. I, I mean, wouldn't as the aircraft is plummeting down, presumably, obviously, you know, I would think stalled at that point, right? Uh, as it's picking up that airspeed, wouldn't it on its own at some point regain some lift over the wings? Well, the aircraft isn't necessarily stalled. No, that's I was asking, yeah. Yeah, no, no. No, it's, it's, it's not stalled. I mean, we think of an aerodynamic stall as when the wings are no longer producing lift. And when an aircraft is in a, a nosedive like that, that does not mean that it's stalled. Um, the aircraft very much was producing lift. However, for some reason, the nose was pitched downward. And that really is the key, gentlemen, is to figure out why was this aircraft in a nose-down attitude? Why were the flight controls positioning this aircraft in a nose-down attitude? So that's going to be the, the focus early on in this investigation to figure that out, why that is. And then, of course, as we had just mentioned, even more interestingly is why was the aircraft able to position itself with a nose-up attitude to regain control for a while, only to return itself to a nose-down attitude, subsequently and then hitting the terrain. So um, very interesting flight profile prior to impact. And um, what's really what, what I'm really interested in hearing um, from kind of a clinical perspective is what were the words said to air traffic control? And I haven't seen anything come out yet, but did the pilots report anything to ATC in the moments before or during the descent? And sometimes that can shed a tremendous amount of uh, light on those final moments and what this flight profile might mean to us, even at this early stage. Sean Prudznicki, retired airline pilot, current professor, The Ohio State University. Well, there's a new trend emerging in the L.A. area among the well-to-do who are getting more and more concerned about the increase in crime and are hearing and reading stories about home invasion burglaries. They are looking to build special safe rooms, or as they are otherwise known, panic rooms. Remember the Jodie Foster movie based on her and her daughter locking themselves into one of these? Uh, Now more people are on board with adding them to their homes. With us is uh, Dean Cryer, Vice President of the International Operations and Building Consensus, Panic Room Builders. Dean, thank you. Have you guys been getting more calls lately? Every day. Absolutely. It's a, uh, it's, we've, we've not seen it like this in many, many years, and yeah, I don't see it slowing down anytime soon. Okay, so so describe what a panic room is. I mean, in, can anybody have one, or do you have to have like a really huge house? And is it? Exp- I mean, just tell us what a panic room is. So a panic room is basically a safe haven. So somewhere where you can go when you know it hits the fan, and you can just feel safe within that room, knowing that the uh, authorities are on the way, and you're safe for that period of time. Um, anybody can have one. Uh, we specialize in the in the luxury end of the market. Um, so most of our clients are within the multi-millionaire, billionaire range, um, living in the, the realms of Beverly Hills, Holmby Hills, Bel Air, you name it. Um, I mean, with us, we it can be twofold. It can be very basic room, uh, maybe in a closet, something like that, uh, where you've got the basic necessities. So we work on a level basis. So a level three, um, you'd be looking at something like a um, uh, Kevlar uh, surrounding the room. So a handgun, um, anything of that nature uh, will not penetrate that room. 
up to a level eight where it's encased in steel. So we're talking three three quarter inch steel, um, reinforced doors, reinforced hinges, reinforced everything. Uh, that would be an AK-47, will not penetrate that room. So it really depends on the threat level of the client, um, but we can we can accommodate anybody and anywhere uh, internationally, um, and we've done it globally. All right, uh, we've we've been in London a few years ago, uh, all over the place. Give me the price difference between kicking out a small closet and then having a bunker that I could hang out in for forty eight hours, and it's got steel all over the place. Yeah, I mean you're you're really ranging from about the hundred thousand dollar mark. Um, and way north of there, we've done ones. We've done bunkers for over a million bucks. Nothing, nothing, for, um, nothing for like fifty bucks. You can definitely <laughs> reinforce. You can definitely reinforce Extra the lock. room for that much. But uh, yeah, I mean, you, you're looking kind of north of a hundred thousand. But uh, the doors start around um, forty-five, like thirty-five, forty-five thousand, and then uh, obviously within the within the whole room itself as well. So uh, obviously, don't give names, but in the LA area, how many people have uh, you said level eight? I think it was the most extreme, right? Uh, yeah. How many people in LA or in the LA area have level eight panic rooms? Ninety percent. Ninety percent. So for what we've got, uh, what we do, we we do ninety percent. Ninety percent of our work is level eight. But how many? But how many? No, but but how many people though in LA would you say have that in in their homes? Uh, to put a percentage on it, I I wouldn't wouldn't want to kind of guess at that. Um, but within the the ultra high net worth, um, I would say way over fifty percent. Would I even know? You're seeing, you're seeing a huge trend. Absolutely huge trend. Would I even know if I was looking at some fancy mansion that that's in there? You hide it behind a bookshelf or something. Then I imagine the real estate agent can't tell me because I could be casing the place, right? Yeah. So you would uh, you would be very very uh, surprised to to know that any room within a house is a panic room. Um, we we say it's an everyday use room, but when needed, becomes a safe haven. If you were to walk around one of uh, one of our installations, you wouldn't even know it was there. But these rooms, you wouldn't know which one. But these rooms, right, are, are not. I mean, it's not the same thing as as a uh, say like a fallout shelter where people want to be able to go there, maybe you know, to live out their lives because they're afraid of I don't know nuclear fallout. These are designed for short term, right, until the the cops can get there. Yeah. So the panic room itself is designed until the authorities get there. So uh, we we install within the room the basic necessities of, of life for a short period of time: water, packaged foods, uh, first aid kits, um, that kind of thing, and and everything down to uh, firearms as well within the room. Um, you need to self you need self defence. You'll have that within the room, but it's based within kind of the the few hours or whatever that takes for the cops to get there. Um, most of these robberies right now are happening at, happening at night. Um, they're smashing through a glass door or something like that. They're breaking in at night. Um, they're coming up to the room. That's why you need a panic room. Um, and if you're in, uh, ideally it would be within somewhere where that you use a lot. Um, so you're in there, you're safe. The kids are safe. Um, but yeah, I mean, we've we've done everything from a small kind of closet 
uh, right through to uh, bunkers. Just very, uh, very quickly before we run out of time, how long does it take to design and, and make one of these panic rooms? Say the the number, you know, the level eight one, how long? Uh, you're, you're talking uh, probably a couple of months to actually design and build out because we have to do all the engineering side of it as well. To, I mean, these things are heavy. Doors are about two to 3,000 pounds alone. So we have to make sure that the, the house can accommodate the, the panic room in the first place. Um, within the location that's desired as well. Um, but the actual installation itself, uh, depending on the size, can take anywhere from kind of four or five days through to a, a couple of weeks. Um, so the actual installation itself isn't that long, but uh, the design process, and we've got to get everything that it you takes time, yeah. need within that room as well. So, yeah. Um, but we've got, a, we've got a full expert uh, <laughs> expert team on hand. All right. Dean Cryer, Vice President, International Operations of Building Consensus Panic Room Builders. No wonder why I can't. They're interested. No wonder why I can't get one for fifty bucks. Yeah. It takes a long time. Uh, sorry. Maybe if I went up to a hundred, jump out the window and run. There's <laughs> it's panic. Yes, panic outside. <laughs> yeah. All right. Uh, more in depth tomorrow.